Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dyes Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with a man I think is called Tahil Shahek, but I've probably messed that up, so I'll let him do his own introduction. And we're going to be talking about international cooperation and competition in geoengineering. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. My name is Sohail Shahek. Okay. How badly did I mangle it on a scale of one to ten? <laughs> it was pretty close. I would say, like, you did a good job. <laughs> That's uh, damning with faint praise, but I'll take it. So, right, let's get going. Who the hell are you? What do you do? And how did your life go so wrong that you ended up on our show? Sure. So I'm currently actually in Geneva, Switzerland, but my, my home is in Italy, in Milano, Italy. And I am a research scientist at RFF CMCC European Institute on Economy and the Environment. This is a research institute based in Milan, Italy. We are focusing on climate change related issues, climate change policy, and mainly economics of climate change. But my background is basically in engineering. I started my journey working and studying in civil engineering, and then I shifted to industrial engineering for my PhD. I did that at Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia. And then I moved to California. I did a postdoc at Stanford University, working at a lab focused on basically climate change issues, related issues to policy adaptation, mitigation issues. And actually, it was there when I started uh, playing with these ideas of geoengineering and how we can manipulate the climate system maybe to to get away with the negative impacts of it. And I have continued working on it until now. More or less, it's not my main focus of research, but it is something that I think we should think more and deeply about it. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about the the previous work on geoengineering that led up to this. How did you get to write this paper and where did the idea come from? Yeah. So as in this paper, I have been lucky to work with two economists very dear friends of mine, Juan Moreno Cruz and Garz Hoytel. Both of them are were at that time in Atlanta, Georgia. So we were in different departments and institutes, but we started working together, looking at the issue of how basically if solar engineering will be available, how it will play into mitigation, how it will interact with mitigation efforts that we have, conventional mitigation and abatement efforts that we have. So that was the main idea behind the series of papers that we had. So we wanted to introduce um, solar geoengineering into the type of economic models that we use for policymaking for climate change. If your listeners are familiar with those, uh, they are called integrated assessment models. Basically, these are macroeconomic computer models that have a core in economy, but also they borrow something from the climate models that we have. So they look into the future and see that what will be the climate scenarios in the future and how these climate, different climate parameters will impact the economy and society. And what you do in these models basically is that you introduce different kinds of policies or different kinds of technologies, and you want to see the interaction between climate system and human system in terms of economic system that we got. So the outcome of these models will be mainly in terms of carbon price. So we want to see in the future how much we should tax carbon emissions 
to reach the certain targets, like the two degree targets that we have laid out in the Paris Agreement. So we did a series of paper about this. We introduced in the first paper, we introduced basically solar engineering, geoengineering into a very well-known model, which is called DICE model. It is developed by Northhouse, Professor Northhouse, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And for his model and his not, work. Not without some controversy, I might add. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of DICE. My understanding of it is uh, the key criticism is that it equates time and space. So you're saying, well, look, economies that are two degrees warmer are this much more or less productive in, in, in the current climate. So you have a, a situation where, you know, an African economy performs slightly different from a temperate economy for whatever reason. And, and it equates performance over time. So as the whole world gets two degrees hotter or two degrees colder, draws an equivalence between time and space. That's my understanding of the criticism. And it's been very heavily criticized for that, right? So yeah. could you speak to that to that, and yeah, whether that sure. affects your work? Sure, uh, that's a very good point. Yes, DICE model, I think it is heavily criticized, as you said, because of its very simplistic view of the world. And we know all that the world is not as simple as the DICE model project. Like it's, it's a very global model. So it, it treats the whole world as one economy and one single decision maker is taking the, all the decision for the world. So of course we don't have that centralized figure in the world. You see with the pandemic event, we don't have WHO having the last word in the pandemic. Every country has its own policies and regulation. So when it comes to climate change, of course, it is something even messier than that. And but, but it is very useful, you know, that, that is a very interesting part is that North has for the first time with this simple model basically tried to show that if you link climate and economy through something called damage functions, which is like saying, very simply saying that how much GDP will lose by one degree increase in the temperature, average temperature in the global temperature, then with this simple model, you can get very interesting result and insight into the future that what you should do now to prepare for the outcomes that you like. If you like to stay below two degree, then how much abatement and mitigation you need to do now. Of course, after this model, and because of the criticism that some of them you mentioned about time and space, so there are lots of different models have been developed and we have regional models, we have models that they are treating every time step differently from others. There is another issue about basically discounting because, you know, North is an economist and the core of economic modeling and the looking in the future is about this discounting, which doesn't make sense when it comes to basically questions about well-being of the next generations. How can you discount that and say that we are the more important people than the next generation and so on. But anyway, what I wanna say is that there are many different models available, but if you want to run a simple model in a sense that to, to see if solar geoengineering, how it will play, as I said, like our question was like, if I introduce solar geoengineering, how much more or less I need to do in terms of abatement compared to my baseline abatement without geoengineering? So in that sense, everybody understands DICE and you can build on DICE and introduce new features into the DICE and always go back and compare it with the basic result that the North House has received. 
Yeah, that may be very useful, but I just want to draw you on this time and space point because I'm not I'm not prepared to let it lie. And every time I see dice concerns me. And the reason that it concerns me is because let, let's look at a, a simple kind of application of dice. So if you were to run dice backwards and to look at what happened in the ice age, so you've only got globe, which is, you know, on average around two degrees cooler than the globe is at the moment, right? But and the dice model would just completely fail to predict the effect on the global economy of having an ice sheet over North America, right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially meaningless, the result from it. Yeah, so one thing is, I agree that backward working of the dice may not give the result that we have observed, but also we should think about that dice. I mean, we cannot extend the, basically the time space of the dice beyond its reasonable justified basically applications, which is when we have the modern era economy and we know how it works and like labor and capital are involved in producing the output. So of course we cannot go back even, I think we cannot go back beyond the industrial revolution and look at those societies who have very different. But but the point I'm making is that it doesn't matter whether the dice is designed to deal with an agrarian economy or not. If, if dice can't see that there's an ice sheet covering up your industrial belt, then what use is it? I think it uses that to tell you that if you have, I mean, again, they have been, I agree with you totally that it have been lots of abuses of the dice model. Dice model was not developed to recommend certain type of detailed policies that we see in some countries they are building that based on dice. I think the main purpose, and you can ask maybe Northos has a better answer, but I think the, the idea of DICE was that to look at, to, to make this link that climate has an impact on your economy. So if you want to reduce the impact of the climate on the economy, you have to balance it with something like abatement. And there is a, this sweet spot where you can get the marginal benefit from reducing the impact of climate with marginal cost of increasing the abatement. And when you get to hit that balance point, then you can find that what will be the trajectory of your abatement. So then you see this ramp that it's the policy ramp that DICE has predicted. But I'm, of course, I agree with you that we cannot put a number that comes from DICE and we can say, this is exactly what we need to do. This is $100 per ton. I mean, the numbers doesn't matter, doesn't make sense. I, I agree with you. It doesn't make any sense to find them, but I think it gives the insight. It says, it says that, okay, you need to start investing in abatement now and you should ramp it up with kind of this shape. So you can get the shape of answer. I agree with you in that sense, if you, if you can see that. Well, setting aside briefly the terrifying shortcomings in your model, I wonder if you could start talking me through how you set it up, the research you did, and what the intended outcome was. Yeah, so we first introduced the solar geoengineering into the DICE model. And we look at, okay, so if we start, let's say solar geoengineering is available tomorrow and we start deploying it, do I need to do more or less in terms of abatement? So this is very basic first question you want to know. And so obviously we see that if if geoengineering is available, which will be eventually reduce the radiative manage, radiative forcing and the global temperature. So which means you need less abating. Then the next question is that this solar geoengineering is not a perfect solution. We know that there are lots of uncertainties about the 
effectiveness of it and also about the cost associated with this. We know that it may have also side effects. So we introduced some costs associated with geoengineering and also some effectiveness parameters. So how did you, you, how did you do that? Because I know that when David Keith did that, he did it with a U-shaped damage function so that as you use more and more solar geoengineering, you get disproportionate damages. So the, the, the damages will rise if you use too much solar geoengineering, the implication being that there'll be kind of unknown effects that come out of the woodwork. So how did you actually mathematically incorporate that? Yeah, yeah, we did. We did very similar. We, we did a quadratic function for the damages. One thing, again, which is important to know is that solar geoengineering, we don't have any calibration for it. I mean, we can think about volcanic eruptions in the past and look at like how much sulfur was out and then what was the effect, but it is not at all similar to what we have in mind about solar geoengineering. So it's very hard really to put numbers on that, but more or less by just reviewing literature, including David Kisser, who has done lots of research in this field, you can parameterize your basically cost function. And then for the effectiveness of geoengineering, that is the parameter, which is the free parameter. So we play with that and we allow for different scenarios to see high effective, low effective, medium effective, how they compare with each other. And so we introduced this uncertainty about the effectiveness, about the cost of geoengineering in the model. One, again, area that I'm very interested and I'm working on is that how to introduce uncertainty into these mathematical models, because they become very complex systems when you introduce uncertainty in the model, when the, there's a probability of something goes wrong in the model. So you want to find out what is your best reaction to that kind of uncertainty. So this was also something we did. And in addition to that, in another paper, what we did was we look at the risk of having tipping points in the model. So as you know, there are basically natural systems that they are at the edge of the basically collapse now because of the climate change. One very famous one is this West Arctic uh, ice sheet. West uh, Antarctic ice sheet, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, well, can I just, well, well while I'm in, in the middle of an interruption, if I could just take you on a little diversion. I want to understand whether this incorporation of tipping points into dice is new, because I'm, I would have imagined that someone else has done this kind of stuff before. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's not new, but what is new about our work was that we did that with solar geoengineering. So that part was new. People have done that without solar geoengineering. They have looked at the tipping points into the dice introduction of tipping point into something like dice model with some modification into the dice model, looking at the, what uncertainty about the tipping point implies in terms of your abatement. But what we did that abatement plus the geoengineering and the uncertainty is not only about the location of the tipping point or the timing of the tipping point, but also about the geoengineering effectiveness. So how these two kinds of uncertainty interacts with each other. So your novelty, just to clarify, then the novelty in the paper was that you were combining geoengineering and tipping points. Is that the point? Exactly, exactly. Yes, so that is the paper before this one that we are going to talk about now. And so wow, this you've one, got two papers. I didn't realize that. So 
So all of the stuff that you've been talking about, about tipping points and stuff like that, has all been about your preliminary paper. So yeah. let, let, let's, in, in, in order to enable people to find and, and enjoy, monitor, check, reject, or incorporate your work, could you give us the titles and the publication venues of both of the papers that you're discussing? Yeah, sure. I can pull it up for you while we are talking and I can just mention them. And you can put them maybe in the... But can you do it in a fluid fashion so it looks like you can multitask successfully? Oh, yeah, yeah, of, of course. Okay, so the, so as I said, there are two papers before this paper. And so in those two papers, the first one we have looked at just introducing the solar geoengineering in the DICE model and looking at the uncertainties around the geoengineering. So but give me the titles. I mean, people need to look these up. So yeah, um, yeah. I appreciate you want to you want to sound like you can do this in a fluid fashion. I'm I'm guessing you can't do this in a fluid fashion. Okay, and there are so, going to be loads of hesitations and pauses, but we'll have a go. No, no. Okay, so the tipping point paper is climate tipping points and solar geoengineering. Very simple title. Where is that published? So that published in Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, or we call it GBO. It's an economic journal, basically. Okay, and then the if you could give the next ones, and then yeah. also give the dates if you can, because I don't know whether this has been a long series of publications or quite a rapid one. So no, these are big papers. Basically, econ papers are very big and they have lots of you know appendixes and stuff. But the the next one is which published after this, but basically the first one in terms of idea is solar geoengineering uncertainty and the price of carbon. So that published in Journal of Environmental Economics and Management, GIM. It's a very well-known, again, econ journal. So both are the econ journals. And then we get to this third one, which has published as a chapter of a book that we are going to talk about it, which is basically looking at the geoengineering, but in, the, in terms of management of regulation around the geoengineering, how international community, if this geoengineering is available, how they can manage and deploy it in a coordinated way or in an independent way. As we see, for example, in the case of COVID, it's very good example. I mean, we started this way back before the pandemic, but I think this pandemic has got people this- well, I've, uh, I've, sli I've slightly lost track of the enormous number of papers that you're attempting to shoehorn into one single podcast. So could you just give us a quick summary of the sort of logical, logical progression from paper to paper. Yeah. So the first paper, which was about the price of carbon, geoengineering carbon price, that was just introducing geoengineering into the DICE model. The second paper, we looked at, okay, now geoengineering is in the DICE paper. In but the was DICE that the first? I mean, I, I thought other people have used DICE within geoengineering. I thought it was quite a common thing to do, to put yeah, yeah. but what we have done in that paper, the first paper, was we introduced uncertainty. So people have done it in a very limited fashion. We broaden that scope of uncertainty. We look at the uncertainty about the cost of geoengineering, uncertainty about the effectiveness of geoengineering in a continuous way. So that is technically what distinguishes our work from the others. And then the second paper, we keep all these elements and now we introduce tipping point into the system and all issues around, you know, uncertainty of tipping points. So this is the second paper. And then the third paper, we just come out of this uncertainty area. So we are not talking about uncertainty anymore. We are talking about regulation. So different countries 
deploying geoengineering in a coordinated way or in an independent way. So, and we want to see what's the best and what are the outcomes, how you can compare these different outcomes together. So that's the main thing we want to focus on today is, is understanding yes. the cooperation and, and competition. So exactly. there's lots of different ways that you could envisage geoengineering being done. So for example, a nation might do it entirely unilaterally without any thought to its neighbours. But And a lot, a lot has been written about that. But personally, I don't find that very convincing. I think the idea that something which is inherently such a cooperative approach where the benefits tend to be somewhat equally shared between nations I'm not, I'm not saying that they're exactly equally shared between nations but they're not they're not wholly divergent it seems mm. odd to me that something like that would be handled in an uncooperative way I and mean, the, the world has got quite a long track record of of, of cooperating on a, a range of different things i mean you know the fact that you can get a hot you know go on holiday to pretty much any capital city in the world and generally have a fairly convenient peaceable and easy time i mean even really challenging nations like North Korea have some degree of tourist industry. So, you know, there, there is a lot of cooperation that goes on and we forget that generally. Mm. And, and because we focus on the competition elements because it's fascinating to watch people have a fight, but it doesn't necessarily inform debate. So do you think that this field will be dominated by hostility and competition? Or do you think that it will be dominated by cooperation and mutual interest sharing? Kind of like the space industry is that it's not typically a, a very aggressive or competitive space between nations in as much as you know they don't tend to shoot each other's spaceships down they tend to cooperate i mean like the russians and the americans decades cooperated in space despite being ostensibly undergoing great power competition during that period of time so where does it sit on that spectrum okay thanks very good examples but i want to draw distinction between the space industry and geoengineering in the sense that space industry doesn't have any tangible benefit or cost. I mean, the costs are huge, of course, there is a cost, but I mean damages in terms of damages to the, to the living of well-being of the human society. Any tangible also benefit, like in a daily life, we don't benefit from having a spacecraft now. Or well, I mean, that's just, let, let me just pick up on that point. I mean, that is just simply outright flat, provably wrong. I mean, at the moment, I'm walking around with a phone in my hand that depends on a GPS system. You know, we all benefit in climate from uh, satellite observations that allow us to you know, live our lives. Just because we can't see a lot of this stuff, the, the technology just works, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or it doesn't affect our lives. The point I'm making is that you could, you could make geopolitical arguments in, in abstract papers written in 1950 about why it would be within each nation's interest to shoot down the satellites, which does everybody else's positioning system. But no one actually does go around shooting down other people's satellites. The point I'm making is that through large amounts of human endeavour, space being one example, we tend not to be that aggressive towards each other. And th there's a huge literature on how geoengineering could be De deployed in a hostile or adversarial fashion. But the point I'm making is that most human activity is actually just tedious trade and tedious international flights and tedious data sharing and tedious internet and, and lots of things that just aren't that interesting, but they make the world go around. And the reason we talk about the other things, the hostile things, is just because they're so damn interesting by comparison. And my concern is that literature gets heavily skewed because of that fact. I think what I try to say, and you are correct, yes, space technologies used in daily life in our mobile phone. I mean, the timing, if, if there is a spacecraft now up there, I don't benefit from it immediately. I mean, 
in terms of yes telecommunication and everything we are relied on but i mean things about like outer space that we are talking about in terms of geoengineering the thing is that the benefit and damages are being are going to be felt immediately if a country let's say launch a solar geoengineering project tomorrow the reduction in the temperature is going to be felt immediately in many countries even globally we think i mean of course it depends on the scale of the project but it can affect lots of countries around it it can be pointed as a weapon toward the neighboring country let's say china doesn't like taiwan it can just deploy a solar geoengineering technique to cool down taiwan and then remove well, all again their... there's again there's good literature evidence to show that that kind of targeted hostile geoengineering, certainly from stratospheric geoengineering, is not really practical or possible. It doesn't have much utility as a weapon, and, and there are lots of weapons that do work pretty well, so why would anyone do that? No, I'm not saying they should do, but there's a potential to do that. So what you what you get is that there is, there is this technology, which is pretty cheap compared to something that you say about the space industry, which is very expensive. That's why you see not lots of developing countries can even enter this game with the space industry. But with solar geoengineering, once the, we open the floodgate, it will basically, every country can develop this technology. It is not very expensive based on what David Kiss and other scientists like him have developed and researched about it in the simulations they have shown in the materials that they have researched. It's not gonna be very expensive. So it can be deployed by any country and it can be used as a weapon, potentially as a weapon. So these are the dangers. We are not saying that they are going to use it. But what we are trying to lay out here is well, that the point like, I'm making is that yeah. this isn't this isn't a novel point. This is I'm not the first person to say this. But geoengineering just doesn't make a very good weapon. It's very hard to point at anybody. You're as likely to hurt yourself or your neighbours or your friends as you are to hurt your enemy. So I'm really sceptical that it has any utility as a weapon at all. So let me give you an example, like the we see in the case of pandemic, like not giving the vaccine or any other of these protection basically devices to any other country. Yeah, you can say, oh, this is not a kind of weapon. I mean, people could do more effective weapons, but even not giving vaccine during pandemic can be act as a weapon. Maybe our perception of weapon is different, but this is leverage, political leverage, something that give any country any benefit over other country. And you can gain some political, military... Yeah, I certainly, I certainly agree with that. But there's also quite a literature that sort of challenges that interpretation. And let me give you a couple of details about how that works. I mean, mainly for the benefit of the listeners. I'm sure you're going to be familiar with this yourself. But in theory, people could do counter-geoengineering. And I think um, David Keith had a paper which discussed that. And I think Andy Parker might have been on that paper as well, but I'm not quite sure. The other thing is that if, if a nation doesn't do enough geoengineering, they do too little and other people can kind of pick up the baton. But also, I think perhaps the most crucial point in all of this is that geoengineering doesn't exist in a political vacuum. People don't just do geoengineering and nothing else, right? They've also got to deal with all of the other trade and interactions that they have with their neighbours on a wide variety of different issues. And as they start behaving like an absolute clown when it comes to geoengineering, then they're going to get their head bashed in in some other form, be that through trade or military or whatever. So there's not really a great incentive for people to behave like absolute idiots. In the same way that if I live in a 
small cul-de-sac, then having loud parties at three o'clock in the morning every night might be entertaining for me. But I'm pretty sure that my neighbours are going to do something about it without much delay. So the idea that I could do that doesn't necessarily correlate with me being able to, in realistic terms, do that. Yeah, but I think we both agree that potentially it could. I mean, at least we, we say there is a chance that, as you say, it can be a tool in a portfolio of other tools that can be used against other countries. It can be one that, okay, maybe it is not the main one, it's not the single one, but it can be used in combination with many other sanctions or economic or military actions against another country. So what, what I but want where to I say- do, Where I do agree with you is I think that nations could potentially use geoengineering in a more selfish fashion if it was being used in the context of a selfish relationship by their neighbors. Yeah, I think that would be possible. Mm -hmm. so, so back to what you were asking my feeling about, is it more coordinated or competitive? I think this is where I stand. I think it is more competitive world we will see in terms of geoengineering. I don't think we're gonna see. And this is again, based on recent experience with things like pandemic, we see something which is global good for everybody to have vaccine access to vaccine. And we know that if we don't give vaccine to other countries, the new variants will emerge that will haunt us. But even well, the point is that, that vaccines, aren't, mm -hmm. vaccines aren't a true pub public good, because although they have a public good effect in terms of restraining the ability of the virus to evolve, they also have a direct benefit. So they're more of a private good than they are a public good. Now, can you just talk me through in quite some detail how you see such a competitive scenario emerging using either real or fictional countries as you might see fit? So what I can see is that some maybe island countries which are in immediate danger of climate change impacts will start developing this technology by themselves or they come into a coalition with a smaller group of countries around them, the bigger countries with more resources, and form some kind of initial steps to deploy this technology because they want to save their life and livelihoods. So those countries who are affected the most probably will be the first to look at into these options. And then there are countries who are either benefiting from climate change, like countries in the northern part, like Russia or Canada. So they, they are gaining from climate change. And why, so they may oppose using this kind of technology because they don't think it is natural. Or there are other countries who think that, yeah, because of the side effects that we don't know. I mean, there are many, many, other good reason not to use geoengineering. I don't want to say geoengineering should be used at all. I want to be clear here that I'm not advocating for geoengineering, but I'm saying that what I can see or I feel that it will happen is that some countries are starting playing with this idea and some countries are very strongly opposed to that. So they may form another coalition against these countries. And then we will see that if this first set of countries deploy this technology, maybe because it's not like that you turn the knob to the certain degree, which is good for everybody. So they may go overshoot it or use it less than what the other countries want. So then you see other countries may deploy more or less of this technology just to contract with this. So there are some papers, I think Juan, that is my co-author, he had a very nice paper about this geoengineering, counter geoengineering, and how basically in a hypothetical world, a different group of countries may use geoengineering against each other or use different mechanism like opposing geoengineering. 
yeah, so this is how I can see it develops. Hello. I just want to challenge what you were saying about the idea that a small island state could challenge a major superpower like Russia. It seems more likely to me that uh, their interests would be more closely aligned for them to act. And, and Russia isn't actively promoting global warming. It does seem to want global warming to be constrained. So I don't think it's acting as a complete renegade in this regard, although they might be not be putting the amount of effort into the policy that you might want. I wonder if you could just comment on that challenge. Uh, as I said, I mean, I'm not into geopolitics of any certain countries. I don't know their motivation. But basically what we see from the literature, from our models, is that there are losers and winners of climate change. Climate change is bad in a global term, but it is not bad when you go locally. Some countries, some regions benefit from climate change. These are the areas who have experienced very harsh winters and cold temperatures. And when the average goes up, they benefit from it, at least in short term. So these societies, these communities have incentive to oppose anything that counter climate change. It is logical and it is in their benefit. So, so although we all, it seems that we agree that climate change is a negative thing, but when we go in the local scale, we should Think about for each local community, does it provide more benefit, net benefit or net loss? And I think there are communities who will oppose it and there are communities who will think that this is the only survival tool that they have because nobody is listening to them. We see in the example of the COP, the last COP that we had in Scotland that like major countries like India and China basically change the language of the final outcome. And then some smaller countries who are basically losing their land and losing their livelihoods. So I don't think they're gonna stand and just watch they are drowning underwater. So they, they're gonna act and they're gonna, as I said, maybe they don't have the resources at the beginning. Maybe they will join other bigger countries who have skin in the game and they, they can develop these technologies for them. And they start, deploying these technologies at the local scale, at least, to see the effect. So this is the outcome I can see. Yeah, I, I, I agree that there might be a differential in terms of incentive. I, where I differ from you is where I don't really see that these small island states have enough leverage to challenge superpowers who do want to do something about climate change. And I don't think that the interest would be that divergent. It's not like some countries actively want climate change and they're promoting it, that some of them are just you know, a bit less keen on acting to try and reduce climate change than others. And, and the idea of having this open hostility seems to me to be quite unrealistic, to be honest. But if you could go through, talk to me in some depth about how you treated this in the paper and the scenarios that you worked on and the principles that you followed, because I'd, like, I'd really like to get to the meat of the paper and just hear you talk freely about that for a few minutes. Sure. So the paper is basically very simple, uh, first of all. I mean, it's not going into this kind of mechanisms of hostility or friendship or coalition between countries, very different countries. We are not talking about real world geopolitics of real world. So the aim of this paper is very different. The aim of the paper is in a very stylized, very simple way to model and see if all the countries in the world were coordinating their efforts and if all the countries were acting independently. And then we also explore some area in between when there is a coalition of countries who go for geoengineering and there is a 
rest of the countries, they don't do geoengineering. So we are talking about a very, again, very stylized form. We are not even considering the size of the countries. We, we just assume that there are N countries and all of them are identical. I know this is obviously unrealistic, but this is the thing about uh, this modeling exercise. It gives you some idea about what is the benefit or what is the basically uh, the disadvantages of having a coalition or having a coordination compared to having competition. So we want to just explore this area. And then later on, you can assume that other researchers in the future will use a realistic numbers and realistic calibration for this model and modeling different countries, heterogeneous countries and see if these results hold or not. But so basically we look at the N countries, as I said, N identical countries. And we say that if they come to agreement and then let's say there's a UN body, there is a centralized body to decide that if they wanna deploy geoengineering, what will be the outcome compared to that if these N identical countries were doing it independently without coordination. So what we see that when you do it without coordination, as we expect, and this is a well-established economic basically idea, is that you will have the emissions will go up. So everybody do less in terms of abatement. And uh, this is free riding problem that we have in economy. And also everybody will do less in terms of geoengineering. So in the, in the sum, so if they were coordinating, they would do more efforts in terms of geoengineering, more efforts in terms of reducing their emission. So then we go to the second part, which we say, okay, now we have modeled the first part, the geoengineering was modeled as something that has basically just individual country has a cost of deploying. But what if this geoengineering has unknown side effects, which is a global scale, let's say, you deploy geoengineering and then you see catastrophic events happen to the whole world or something goes wrong basically. So then we model that again, very simple term into our equations. And what we saw that again, comparing coordination with the competition, we see that the free riding phenomena hold for abatement. So basically in the terms of competition, everybody do much less than what they would do if they were coordinated. So, but, so in this example, are you treating both abatement and geoengineering essentially as a public good, which tends to be underinvested in without a lack with a lack of central control? Yeah. Is that the economic framework that you're applying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Also but there's a limitation public. there, isn't there? Because you're not thinking about the free driver effect in doing that. Because if you have very cheap intervention, then people can use it as a lever. Yeah. So actually, I was getting to free driving now. So if you have the damages, global damages, what our paper shows that once you introduce the global damages from geoengineering into the system, then you will see the effect of free driving. So everybody basically, when they are doing the competitive in the competitive world, when everybody decides independently, they will do more of the geoengineering themselves on their competitive term when compared to the case that they were coordinated. So this is the free driving that we see in the geoengineering. And we have seen it also in other literature. They have explored this possibility of free driving. Yeah. The point I'm making about free driving is that you can use free, you can use the ineffective, the 
the low economic cost of geoengineering to force abatement. You can say, if you do not abate, I will use geoengineering. And I wonder if you built that effect into the paper. No, basically, nicely what you are saying. But in our case, we are just using geoengineering and abatement in a relatively comparable cost. Uh, I mean, they are the geoengineering, of course, is much uh, less costlier than abatement. But we are not playing with this game that, okay, if you are not doing abatement, I'm going to do more of geoengineering to compensate for your lack of abatement. We don't observe that observation. And I think that is mainly because our model is too simple to include those kind of basically differentiation in the cost into it. Our model is coalition forming and this kind of uh, using geoengineering as a stick. Isn't that kind of quite fundamental to the way that geoengineering is likely to be applied. Yeah, yeah, I agree. As, as, as I told you, I think geoengineering at the beginning will be applied as a coalition. I mean, it's very unlikely that a one single country starts using it without even consulting with at least immediate neighbors or people who are getting affected the most. So I agree we should move to that direction, but this paper was not gonna cover those areas. I mean, we have talked about coalition, but again, in a very simple term that in the future, when it is established and you have one group of countries who are using geoengineering against one group that who are not using, you see something between coalition and competition, basically, between full cooperation and fully competitive world, basically. So Kate Ricky looked at this already, and she looked at coalitions, formation of coalitions and how power blocks can work. I wonder if you could speak to how your work interacted with what was learned by that paper and others. Yeah, so the other papers who have looked at this coalition for formation, I think the the work they have done is that more using this basically having in mind this integrated assessment model idea in mind to look at the long-term impact of forming a coalition on the impacts of climate change on the economy, on the other countries impact. We are not doing that in this model. It is, we are not, I mean, we are using the DICE model, but we are not modeling the world in a many different, and when I talk about N, but when we come, we have two parts in our paper. One is that analytical part or theoretical part that we are talking about N countries and we solve this model just analytically. But when it comes to simulation, we just do two countries. So we are not going beyond the two countries. So we are looking at competition between two big players and then coalition between these two players. So what you see in the other papers is that they have more detailed kind of models in terms of numerical models. So they have used multiple countries and they can see the formation of coalition within their model. When you have N player, I don't know how many countries they had in that example, but maybe they have 10, 12 regions, and then they see this formation of coalition. In our model, I see we have emphasized more on the theory of the basic coalition, cooperation, and competition rather than the numerical. Numerical model for us was just to some kind of very simple modeling to see if it confirms the results that we got from the theory. I wonder if you could speak to um, Daniel Hayen's work on this, because I think he's done some similar exploration. Do you have an opinion as to how your work compares to his and how the two relate and drive the field forward together? 
I don't have his work on my mind. And actually this paper, so basically this paper that we are now talking about, the idea was we started this paper in 2000, I think 18 was it. So it has been long under the review and publication process because it's a chapter of a book. It's not a peer reviewed uh, paper in a journal, but the book publication took a long time. So we kind of lost track of the recent, basically literature who had looked at this. So Daniel is a good friend of mine. I'm working with him on other projects, but specifically about this topic, I don't have his paper in mind to, to be able to talk about it. Do you, do you think that this field is beset with a problem that the risk landscape is, is, is too simple so that countries' actions are taken as if geoengineering doesn't affect relations more generally? That seems to me to be a key weakness of the way that this work as a whole, not just your paper, many other papers are also done. So the, I think it's a general criticism of maybe the community of, let's say, integrated assessment modeling community that I am part of, is that when we look at the global, basically, interactions between different players, we don't have or we cannot model them in a holistic way. Like we cannot take into account even trades between countries, or there are very few models, if you look at out there in terms of IAMs looking at climate change that have all this kind of geopolitical connection and interaction between the players. So I think this is a big criticism of this all models that we don't know. For example, yes, we say these countries get into a coalition for geoengineering, but maybe in reality, these countries have very different, basically economic or even very different geopolitical, basically ideas, and they may not even form a coalition ever over anything. But what we put them together because we think it is what the model says that it would be a, the best outcome for this coalition. Well, one simple way of doing it is just to monetize the reputational costs. So the more countries behave aggressively or foolishly, the more they suffer a monetary cost in terms of the loss of reputation. I mean, the, the value of a country's reputation does meaningfully matter to that country. And it's not impossible that that can be monetized. Yes, but I think realistically, if you look at it, many countries do things that maybe, I don't know, reputation again, how you measure it. Like, I don't know, like you see the buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border now. Is it damaging Russia or is it benefiting Russia in terms of showing a strength? So it's very hard to say which way it goes. You know, if a country joins one coalition against Solar geoengineering, is it a good thing for the, its reputation or bad thing? So again, we are not experts, and I think that is the problem. We maybe need to reach out to more people in the field of international relations and geopolitics to learn about these topics and bring those expertise into our models. So how do you feel this field will likely develop in the future? Because to me, a lot of small and relatively interesting papers get developed, but they don't seem to ever really shed light on the big picture. I think everybody is now doing, I mean, again, talking about the community that I belong to, this integrated assessment model, economies kind of people who are looking at this. We are looking at different hypothetical scenarios about if this technology is available, how it will play into the like I was actually reviewing a paper recently, which was looking at, again, like geoengineering into the future, if it is available, how it will, if you go overshoot and then reduce the temperature by geoengineering, how it compares with other scenarios. So we are looking at this kind of problem, but in reality, I think everybody is hoping 
or everybody wants to see if at least at a very small scale, geoengineering technologies can be deployed as a test. And then we get very good information from the cost, from the effectiveness of them. And then we can calibrate all these models because as I said, these models are all running on some calibration, which is based on let's, volcanic experiences in the past at the best, which is, we know it I is I understand not a, that, but that's a more yeah. of a, surely that's more of a geophysical limitation that the, the biggest uncertainties in your discipline mm. are a lack of ability to model countries interaction in a way that fully takes into account the risks and costs and benefits of, of deploying geoengineering in various different circumstances yeah but it i don't have confidence that any the... of these models are well yeah i get the geophysical stuff is uncertain but i don't see that's where the principal uncertainty is I, d I just don't think that any of these papers fully buttoned down the real forces acting on countries yeah yeah i agree but also one important thing is the cost. We don't know even the cost of geoengineering. So we, in all these models, we assume geoengineering is very cheap, but how cheap it is or how expensive it is. And it, it also depends if it's gonna be a patented technology or it's gonna be a public knowledge technology that everybody can use. So you, you see this will also play into that game of like vaccine that we talk like, is it gonna be private entities who are launching it? Is it a public good for everybody and government's gonna hold on to that? Uh, so these are the areas we don't know. And I think ethical issues are a big issue. Is it like, do we have a right even to manipulate the climate system or not? I wonder, I wonder if you could speak to your techniques as opposed to others that are used in this field. So one of the things that people use in alternative is agent-based modeling where you're using real real life serious games so that you've got got humans who are subject to human biases and basically features or you you say some assumptions about how this agent interacts well, to be clear us. what i was using what i was using agent-based modeling to look to look at agent-based stimulations where you're looking at humans who are playing a role and they're being they are you're modeling a scenario using a role play type situation so they are agents but they're human agents yeah, I was just wondering if you could speak to that as a comparable technology. You can do that, but I think agent-based model, the main limitation is that it is heavily depend on the assumption and calibration of those agents. What are those parameters of interaction that you're taking? Because agents make decisions in interaction with other agents, and then there are these parameters that control this. Let's say it says that if three of your five neighbors decide to do that, you, you will do that, something like that. And then many, many times with different calibrations. No, again, I, I get your point, but I think you're, we're talking across purposes here. So what mm -hmm. I'm meaning here is using serious games approach. So you have actual humans uh -huh. who are role-playing, not mm -hmm. using mathematical mm -hmm. models. Mm -hmm. Do you think that having role-playing and acting in a situation where they're free to do what they like, but they are humans, Right, right. do you think that that gives you a better insight than these automated mathematical models, be they agent-based or be they be dice-type models? Yeah, I think it's useful to do that. I have seen in the... Then at the end, again, it depends on the, the people that you they are playing the game. They come with the prejudices and some, some ideas and ideals and, you know, moral background. And so they their decision is not poorly purely based on economic or cost-benefit analysis, they may have objections against geoengineering when it, and they enter the game, you know? That's the point, surely. I mean, you're, you're trying to model 
people being weird and flawed and doing strange things, right? Yeah, but if, if you assign, you have a limited number of people to play these games and then each player will be assigned a country. And then let's say if I am assigned China, how can I represent the whole country of China as one person with my limited knowledge about their decision-making system? So I well, think- my, my, my argument on that is mm-hmm. that, yes, a person, an individual person, particularly somebody with no strong cultural links to China, might be very bad at estimating what China might do. But they're probably not as bad as your simplistic mathematical equation. Well, the, at least the simplistic mathematical equations, you can see how it works. I mean, the equations don't lie to you. The mathematics don't lie. Like you can see one plus one. They, becomes they absolutely two. do lie because they lead you to conclusions that are not supported in the real world. And, and, and that's my principal concern is that just because you can calculate a result doesn't mean that that result in any way accords with reality. Yeah. And, and that's the, you know, I think you've summed up what a lot of people's criticisms of economics are in general, that, you know, it's very model driven and not in many ways very connected to the real world. And I think that what you're talking about here is an example of exactly the failure of economics as a discipline. Yeah, uh, I mean, we are not claiming, I mean, obviously, we are not claiming our models are applicable to the real world in full extent. As I said, from the beginning about the DICE model, they should just give you some idea about like, what is underlying, because we know that the the whole economy, yes, it's a very messy ecosystem, but there are maybe few rules that we can drive in general, and then we can say supply and demand, for example. So there are some equations we can write down, and you can say, argue that in a specific case, no, they don't hold because of different reasons. But in general, in long term, when you look at the economic system, you can see that some of these equations that have been extracted from the real world. Now we are playing with those equations and derive new results based on that. So I think they give some insight, but of course they are not reality and we are not claiming at all that they will show the exact result and outcomes in the real world. Yeah. Do they give false hope though? Well, they might, yes. There are, they have been, of course, papers who have been when, when you look back and look at the academic papers, you think some of them, yeah, they have predicted something that never happened or very wrong and very off. But I think that's the strength of the scientific community. You can always go back, criticize the papers and say, okay, this was the paper. They did it wrong. I'm going to do it wrong. But you are going to do it in a scientific way. You are not going to throw away everything and you say, okay, so the scientific method is wrong. You are accepting the scientific method, but within that world, you are criticizing other paper and you are bringing new ideas. Yeah. Well, I think to, to equate dice applications with science is a bold step. I mean, it's not the same as a particle collider, is it? No, no, because of course, eco- I mean, the field of economy is a very different field than economics is than like the the scientific, basically, what we, we know about empirical science, basically, yeah. But, but there is a value in economic modeling and economic understanding of the system. And I think everybody, as we see, like why we have a Nobel Prize for economy is also the reason that scientific community has accepted economy as a science. And Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to decry economics in general. I mean, I've... I've studied economics myself academically it's part of my degree and I got high school qualifications in economics as well so it's not something that I you know 
don't see value in. All I'm saying is that I think that this DICE approach, I think DICE is a fundamentally limited model in terms of its ability to really truly predict and analyze the impact of climate change. We've got really deep concerns about it. But also I think the way that these, this very, very simplistic modeling works mm-hmm. is as likely to mislead as it is to inform. And that's my fundamental concern that I see this sort of stuff as interesting twiddling that doesn't necessarily have zero value, but it doesn't really get to the meat of the matter. That's my principal concern. And I've not seen any of these papers which have made me think, yes, that's exactly how countries will behave. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they'll do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have limitation, but what's the alternative? Is that, yeah, to spend time and lots of resources to try to, you know, model something very close to well, reality. I, well, I said, yeah, well, hold on. I mean, I've given a very simple example. I think if you basically get a bunch of high school students in a room and tell them to behave like Russia or behave like China, I'm not saying that what they'll do will be right, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be more wrong than what you're doing. No, the problem is that this high school student, the same group of students, if you bring them tomorrow to the room and play the same game, you will get a different result. And so that is that is not scientific because the science is about repetition of the same. You want to give the same input and get the same output. And that is what we are building here. All the equations, all everything we say in our paper and the papers like DICE is that every researcher everywhere in the world can repeat this exercise and get the same result. But the problem well, with things you suggest is that yeah, every day it changes. I don't fully agree. Because if you look at biology, the problem with biology is when it when you're studying it, it runs away, right? Animals don't behave consistently every single time that you poke them, right? You wouldn't decry biology and say it's not a proper science because the behaviour of animals is not fully predictable. And, and, and pursuing absolute predictability and certainty in economics doesn't necessarily mean that your results correlate any better with the real world. Yeah, but I think there is... I mean, this is not my field of expertise, but I think there is a clear distinction between human decision-making than something like a cell or bacteria or even bigger animal decision-making. Like we are talking about societies and, and civilization. And I don't think we can compare it with the cell biology, or animal biology. We're all animals and we behave in very animalistic ways. We all have to do the same animal behavior. We might, we might do things like talking that animals don't do, but we say we're not exempted from animalistic urges and emotions so i don't i don't draw that yeah but, but i don't think you can put everything in that like we have ethics and morality and other consideration long-term thinking forecasting and all comes into our decision making so i don't think yeah we have we get very big part of that from our animalistic instincts but also we can control that we can act totally opposite to what our instincts tells us to do. Certainly more complicated than a mouse, right? I, I get that. The point I'm making is that I think that your ambition to, to reduce human behavior to a series of predictable equations mm-hmm. that give an empirically, empirically justifiable result and one that's highly rep- repeatable, is just not a realistic goal. And, and by pursuing that goal, I think you run grave risks of offering a reality which is more certain than reality actually is. Mm -hmm. But I think there are good reasons to do that. As I said, if the whole field of economics was like, you know, why you are doing this, it is 
not useful or useless, then you wouldn't see this basically economic jobs in the, that we have. And I know they have failed many times, but also you can see that they can predict very well lots of things about, as I said, like things about uh, supply and demand, how the markets work and doesn't work sometimes. And so no, it, I understand. It, I understand that economics as a, as a discipline has value. I'm not trying to criticize economics per se. What I'm trying to say is that the application of, of economics to this very um, complex coalition based political reasoning that the mm-hmm. countries undergo and take part in that's where i i think that there's a real challenge a real difficulty mm-hmm. in making this work successfully yeah i think we can agree that it is a limited work and i never claim that oh this is the solution and the countries should act this way or that way what we are doing here i mean we are saying that this is the theory this is the if it was as i said at the beginning if you assume There are N countries and they are identical. So of course we know that there are no N countries and they are not identical. So, but we say, if we assume that we get this set of results. So this can be a baseline. Then other researchers can start changing this assumption and you get closer and closer to reality. But always you have this baseline that tells you, okay, this is the ideal case that you can see. As I said, this paper is not claiming anything about real war. It is just saying that in the ideal world, what will be the ideal competition and ideal cooperation? So I think we should be, yes, modest about what we are claiming. And I want to be clear, I never claimed that this paper, a specific paper said anything about the real world and geoengineering, how it should work. It was just trying to theoretically says that if the coalition happens, this is the outcome we want to see compared to the competition. So again, we wanted to see these two, where they stand compared to each other, relative to each other. But now when we change the world and assume lots of different realistic assumptions, when we enter them into equation, I think it's still this may hold because it comes from this basic mathematical background that we understand. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on and defending not only your paper, but also your discipline. Is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered about your work or anything you'd like to say about forthcoming work or, uh, you know, gigs might be playing uh, for your stand-up or uh, lead guitar (laughs) career or anything else you'd like to plug? Thank you, Andrew. It was very nice talking to you and it was challenging and good. I think, yeah, we need to talk more. I mean, our discipline definitely needs to be criticized and learn more about other disciplines. About my future work, actually, you mentioned Daniel Haynes. I'm working with him in about a very interesting, we are working on a paper about uh, basically these tipping points. And it's nothing to do with geoengineering. Now, again, it's very theoretical model, so probably you will be criticizing it a lot, but it will be about basically when you have a tipping point and you will see some signs, early warning signals, that telling you that you are getting closer to tipping point, how you need to act and adjust your action before getting to that. So as an yeah, there are, Tim Lenton did some work on that critical. Yeah, exactly. Down. So he's a yeah. But we are not even talking yet about climate change or anything. We are just trying to very simplified mathematical model of this and thinking something about very simple ecosystem like a lake and fisheries in the lake that you overfish and the fish population dies off, something like that. 
but very simple model. So it's a very theoretical paper. I hope that we get it out soon and you will read it and I will be happy to come back to the show and talk to you about that. Well, it's not about geoengineering, so we will not be extending you an invite. But if you want to make it about geoengineering, then yeah, uh, yeah. you will quite, quite literally be our guest. So <laughs> you, can bear, you can bear that in mind in your future decision-making and perhaps come up with an entirely unrealistic model of your own yeah. behavior to predict whether you do or do not add geoengineering to your new paper to get back <laughs> on our podcast. So um, I'll look forward to getting not only your paper, but also your meta paper about the likelihood of you doing this paper about geoengineering. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very Bye. much. Have a good one. Bye.